my work, I think, is deeply personal, but I'm actually a very private person. There's a lot of things about my life that I just, um, particularly in the last two years, have just stopped sharing publicly. And um, that is a boundary that feels really good to me, you know. Um, and I think it's a boundary that makes it clear that I'm interested in a, in a type of interaction that still allows me to cherish the quiet parts of my living that propel me to the work. Um, most of the things that take me to writing are things I don't talk about publicly or things I don't share publicly. And I need to keep those as my own. And I need to keep those um, close to me so that I might still feel good about them. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Okay, I think I want to start by reading a passage from A Little Devil in America by Hanif Abdurraqib, who is our guest this week. He writes in this excellent essay on Aretha Franklin, one of a couple essays on Aretha Franklin in this collection. He writes, I like this idea that it's noble for Black people to react viscerally to work that is created for us and to respond in a language we know well. There's something valuable about wanting the small world around you to know how richly you are being moved so that maybe some total stranger might encounter your stomp, your clap, your shout, and find themselves moved in return. I think I wanted to read this because it just seems so in the spirit of this book in general, which is notes of celebration of Black American performance. Um, and it just came out a couple weeks ago. It is such a good book. And it was really exciting to get to talk to Hanif about his writing practice, his faith practice, um, his work as a critic, as an essayist. He is the author of a number of books. Um, before this most recent book, he wrote a collection of essays called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. He released Go Ahead in the Rain, notes to a tribe called Quest, um, and two collections of poetry, including The Crown Ain't Worth Much and A Fortune for Your Disaster. It was such joy to get to talk to him, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Special thanks for this episode go to the Black Mountain Institute in Las Vegas, Nevada. You know, today is the first day of Ramadan, and... Um, you know, I was raised Muslim, and I have a, uh, I have a probably tenuous relationship with faith these days. But I still, I still participate in Ramadan, and um, whenever I think I'm realizing this perhaps more this year than I ever have before. So many people are kind of like, "Well, how do you? You know, you you seem to work at a pretty high rate. Like, how do you stay focused? How do you this and that?" And for me, it doesn't seem abnormal, but I am realizing that there are disciplinary practices that were built into my life at a very young age 
you know, when one is like required to pray five times a day, uh, I mean, Ramadan is a, is, is a whole practice and discipline. You know, I always joke that I'm so good in the first 10 days of Ramadan. You know, I plan my meals. I did like last night, I did my like 10 day meal prep, which I never do in my normal life. But, you know, I made like these fruit and yogurt and parfaits and I baked this like nutrition, nutrient rich bread for the morning, all this stuff. Um, but like 10 days from now, that's gonna, I'm not, I'm not making anything, you know, I'm not doing <laughs> shit. Um, but these disciplines are kind of baked into my psyche in a way that doesn't feel unhealthy to me, you know, in a way that feels very normal, in a way that I feel very comfortable with, but they're still baked in, you know, they're still kind of like, okay, the work that you do, you know how to get to it because you lived a, a childhood that was set by a clock, you know? Mm-hmm. So much of religion in general, but I think Islam in, in particular is so much of things being set by a clock and having to execute things within a time window. And um, I, I think that's maybe the threshold that I've crossed a long time ago that um, makes my writing something I can return to easier and more more graciously. That was the first thing I thought about when I got that prompt, especially because I knew we'd be talking uh, around, you know, I didn't know it'd be the first day, but I knew it'd be around the first day of Ramadan. It was interesting because I'm not a very disciplined person by nature. I mean, I notoriously will skip out on, I, I'm a very routine-driven person, but to, to, I think in my brain that means that I make routines that I sometimes stick to. Um, now, some of them I'm, I'm pretty rigorous about. I think my workout routine is something I'm pretty rigorous about. Though, now, today, I was dreading, you know, like, the thing with Ramadan is I got to figure out, I normally work out in the mornings. Like, I wake up and I work out. But now it's like, I got to figure out, I got to flip it. I got to work out, like, right before the sun sets, you know, so I'm not dehydrated all day. Which, right. which I mean, I played, you know, some of this too is is not just my religious upbringing. I was also an athlete. Um, I played high school sports and college sports. And there's something about that that also bakes a discipline into one. But it's not like I enjoyed these things. It's not like I liked getting up at 6 a.m. my freshman year of college to go to soccer practice, you know? Um, But I think I just have a very sharp understanding of this is what needs to be done and therefore I will do it. Um, Or even on a a more joyful scale, this is what I would like to do and therefore I'm going to do it even if there's some discomfort in my pursuit of doing it. I think those, you know, my religious upbringing, my athletic upbringing really baked that kind of discipline into me. When you, when you sit down to write, it sounds like what you're saying is that like the, the process of having to form these habits where you, where you sit down to do a thing, or maybe you don't sit down, you wake up to do something um, over and over again, sort of depend, regardless of what your mood is or whether you feel like it, um, feels central to you to to writing is writing a practice like that for you where it feels like you need to um you need to sort of do it by the clock not entirely i don't i don't write every day and i definitely don't do it by the clock but what i think i need is the ability to be able to turn it on comfortably when the desire strikes you know i, I just simply need to be able to not want to run from writing or dread writing when my desire to write arrives, or quite frankly, when I have a deadline I have to hit, you know, because those are two different things sometimes. 
it's one thing for me to be like much of what I was doing during Little Devil was just writing through the excitement of I want to write this. I want to be here. I can't wait to get these thoughts down. But I mean, to be clear, I have a lot of moments where I'm writing because I have to. Um, but in either of those cases, I feel like when it's game time, when the lights are on, I have to be able to perform. I don't necessarily, I mean, the thing that I always got in trouble for in my athletic life was that I, I was not necessarily a robust or an enthusiastic practicer. I did not love practice a lot. Um, but when the game came around, when it was game time, I could figure it out. I could always figure it out. Um, and I need writing to be that for me. I need to know that when it's time to turn it on, I can figure it out and not dread it. Does that feel related to spiritual practice for you? Um, I think so. I mean, for me, so it's funny, I just answered a question today if I felt like writing was a spiritual practice. And I don't think on its face, I don't think it is. Um, but I do think that I find myself tapping into these same routines and rituals that feel like I'm crawling closer to a belief in something beyond myself, in part because I, I you know, I think I'm in terms of talent, like basic talent and writing knowledge. You know, I didn't go to school, I didn't study writing in college. I don't have any kind of quote unquote formal training. So I have my limits in terms of actual talent and actual knowledge. But I believe in, I am almost, because of that, I'm almost required to believe that I am capable in something beyond my skill set and beyond how good I might be on paper with what I bring to the page. And something about that feels spiritual, you know? Yeah. Call it kind of walking into the void and hoping that through your journey, something higher will cloak you in what you need to survive. So, can you tell me a little bit about um, where this book came from, this most recent book? Why, why this was the book you wanted to write now? Well, it wasn't, honestly. I mean, I, I, I be it began as a completely different book. And, um, you know, began with a book, began as a book about a history of minstrelsy that kind of wove through the history of appropriation and repurposing of Black art and all this. And, and I, as I got halfway through it, I began to think, um, you know, this isn't joyful. This isn't bringing me pleasure because... By default, because of the uh, the route I had decided to take, I could not escape the centering of whiteness, which I just wasn't that interested in. Mm -hmm. You know, um, mm -hmm. I, or at least I found myself not that interested in it. And so then the question became, well, how can I crawl myself a little closer to celebration or something that feels celebratory? Or how can I detach my ego from this, which was a big thing, and write essays that don't center on arguments, right? Hmm. To remove the argument from the equation, for me, meant that I was no longer compelled to flex my own knowledge or even 
argue for anything other than, in most cases in the book, argue for the, the ceremony and celebration and pleasures. Like, I don't want to get into an argument about Aretha Franklin. I just want to celebrate Aretha Franklin. Yeah, I noticed that um, when I was reading, that the book is so feels so um, loving and... I don't know if festive is the right word, but it does feel celebratory. There's so much just exultation in a lot of the the artists that you write about. Um, and that's that's also set against, you know, the fact that you also write about things that are really hard. You, you know, you write about racial oppression, you write about difficult experiences in your own life. You there's a lot of pain also that sort of exists alongside that excitement and exuberance and and sort of joy in these artists. And, um, I was, I was hoping you could tell me how that, how that balance comes about in your work. Well, in this book specifically, I thought about it like, um, thinking about a balanced meal, which is something I don't ever really think about except now, I suppose, um, I suppose I have, but you know, I, I did not want the book to be propelled by pain or trauma or grief. Um, I wanted it instead to be propelled by, um, again, celebration and an understanding that people, um, people's full lives are more than just what they've endured. And so, you know, that, that's something that, um, was vital to me. And it made me think about if I'm offering, if I'm offering some tragedy or some trauma, for example, the explicit naming of Don Cornelius' death, I'm not going to stay on that too long. And I'm going to counter that with some much longer threads about the magic and miracle of Don Cornelius' living. Um, it's a, for me, it was, it was not about um, hovering on ideas of what was lost as much as, as it was celebrating ideas of, of what was and has been and could be. Um, and for me, this was a big centering way to make sure that I was not, this was centering in a way because it made sure that I was divesting from the idea that, um, black life is only appealing or tantalizing if it comes alongside of trauma. I'm curious to know how you're thinking about that balance, that balanced meal, um, and that pushing back against the portrayal of black life is, you know, synonymous with or inextricable from trauma if that changed for this book or if it, if there was an evolution in your thinking um there for this book or if it feels consistent with your past work i don't know that it feels it does not feel as consistent as i would like it to be with my past work but i also think i evolved a bit with this book and i think that i um you know the the real miracle of writing for a long time is that you get to see your work grow and you get to see your work evolve because with any luck, um, you as a writer are evolving. Um, and, and you as a person are evolving, uh, more importantly. And, and so, um, you know, that is, um, that is something I, I think that I have felt very thankful for the ability to look back on my past work and not feel shame or not feel anxiousness 
um, about what I believed and knowing that, that anything I've wrote in the year before this one helped carry me to this book. Yeah. Something that I loved and noticed about Little Devil is that you use dancing and yourself dancing as a, or not dancing as a motif um, and sort of as a framing structure. And I was wondering how you decided to do that, why that was what you chose. Yeah, I mean, well, one, I, so much of the book relied on my desire to reframe uh, conversations about, to stretch the definition of performance, which meant for me to stretch the definition of movement, which means, of course, to stretch the definition of dance and dancing and um, to maybe think through the type of dances that I have done in my life to keep myself what I imagined safe at, at the time to um, honor people who, well, let me rephrase that, to keep myself safe um, or what I believed safety was at the time or um, to fit in, to bring myself out of or further away from anything that felt like loneliness. And um, it felt like a good framing device because if I'm talking about movement or if the book is centered on these ideas of movement, then I think that I should be at the center of that center. Um, and I should be broadening the ideas of what movement are and what they can be and um, what they have been in my life. I, I love this idea about um, stretching the ideas of what movement is and what performance is. Um, and I'm curious how you think about writing, if whether you think about writing as a performance of its own kind. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that uh, it's, it's the reason why, you know, and I, I'm not intensely beholden to this, but I respect those who are. It's, it's why we are so, some writers are so deliberate about detaching themselves from the speaker in the work, right? right? What is that other than a performance, other than saying, I am projecting a funhouse mirror version of myself into the work. And that has nothing to do with um, a writer believing themselves lacking in any way, right? Or believing mm -hmm. themselves um, inadequate as a, an, uh, as a tour guide through the interior. Somehow, I mean, for some folks, it's just simply saying, I need, I need distance. I need uh, an emotional distance between, between these spaces. And so, yeah, that, that's, um, that I, I do think, um, I do think that's, that's a type of performance too. Yeah. Is there a, is there a type of performer or performance that you model yourself on as somebody who writes and considers performers? Um, no, but I also think like much like my writing, I am someone who ha is like an, a, a, a kind of cluster of many things. You know, I, I pull my writing influences from a lot of different places. Um, much like I pull my fashion influences and my pop culture influences and my, you know, I, I think that the way I present myself in the world is, is very much um, 
myself, but it's been cultivated through years of admiration and mimicry, um, which, I, again, is something I don't think is, is shameful. No, not at all. Um, I think my sense is that everybody does that. Um, and I do think a project of the book was me personally becoming okay with, with this and becoming unlatching myself from the shame uh, that comes with feeling like I am someone who has borrowed many parts of myself from many other selves and many other corners of the world. Yeah. I mean, is that something that you used to feel less at peace with? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's easy to be wrecked with, um, well, for me, it's easy to be wrecked with anxiety about anything. Um, but, it's easy to be racked with anxiety around quote unquote authenticity and what one believes and doesn't believe authenticity to be. But also because I think we, I don't know how to say this gently, but I do think that we live in, in, in a time and place and world or whatever, where people are really entitled, can feel very entitled to the interior lives of folks. Mm-hmm. and are resistant to people very intensely guarding what they want to show people and what they want to keep to themselves. I kind of, and I'm not begrudging anyone who says this, but I kind of always laugh a bit or I'm confused when I see people who are like, why don't you post about your failures on the internet? It's like, well, <laughs> why? I don't understand why that is a requirement for being on the internet or like why that's even something that anyone has an investment in that for in a large public space right? right um or why that is something that would hinder someone from saying this good thing happened and i'm very proud of it um so these kind of things right they can i think make some people and i, I fell into this a bit feel a little insecure about the question of authenticity but really um, really that, that question for me in the working on, uh, in working on this book, I, I kind of pulled myself away from the shame I'd felt and being wrapped up in it. Hmm. Yeah. I really, um, I really relate to that feeling of feeling a little bit ambivalent about what is expected of somebody who's supposed to be online or even who just writes publicly, you know, who writes publicly using their own eye um, and how much access people then think they have had or ought to have to you. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I, you know, I will say that I am someone I'm like a, you know, straight cisgender dude. And so my, the, the volume of that in my life is different than it is for folks who are at more marginalized identities than I am, or folks who are at some identity intersections that draw, um, where people feel a little bit more entitled to overstepping. You know what I mean? I mean, you know what I mean, obviously, but, um, but I, which doesn't mean that doesn't happen, but I mean, it happens in a very different way with me. Um, that is sometimes more manageable but I also, I also try to make myself pretty accessible because 
I don't necessarily, which is a one, it's a privilege to be able to say like, I'm going to make myself accessible. Um, but two, you know, I don't want to be on the outskirts. I don't want to be hard to reach. My website has a contact form that goes direct, like straight to me, um, directly to me. And does that mean that I sometimes get like immensely inappropriate messages? Of course. But does that also mean that the, the large majority of those messages are kind and something that I want to respond to and things that remind me to be present in the world and to detach myself from the hierarchy of writer and audience and instead, you know, believe in what I believe in, which is that whether or not I've written something that moves someone, we're still kind of all shuffling through the world together at various frequencies, of course, but I am aligned with and interested in how folks are moving through the world, whether or not my writing or anything I've written has inspired them. And so I do like to make myself accessible and I do like to have conversations that bring people in. Um, but of course that, that means that, um, you know, to be perceived by a lot of people is, can be tough. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you manage that for yourself? I mean, I, I do think that I'm good at setting some boundaries. Um, I mean, just like practical boundaries. Like I, I often don't, I don't look at or much respond to Instagram DMs. Um, you know, I think because I have a, a form on my website that goes directly to me and I'm very open often about how it goes directly to me, I really encourage folks to go there. Um, because I just like, it's too overwhelming to, to open Instagram DMs and I just don't look at them often. Um, you know, and I, I'm a pretty realistically, it's interesting because I think that people think of my work as very, as very personal. And I suppose it is, but I think there's a difference between being personal and being private. You mm -hmm. know, my work I think is deeply personal, but I'm actually a very private person. There's a lot of things about my life that I just, um, particularly in the last two years have just stopped sharing publicly. And, um, that is a boundary that feels really good to me. You know, um, and I think it's a boundary that makes it clear that I'm interested in a, in a type of interaction that still allows me to cherish the quiet parts of my living that propel me to the work. Um, most of the things that take me to writing are things I don't talk about publicly or things I don't share publicly. And I need to keep those as my own. And I need to keep those, um, close to me so that I might still feel good about them. The band The Gaslight Anthem was filming a music video for their song 45 at the Pony in New Jersey, Stone Pony. And, um, you know, I was a fan of the band and they kind of put out this call that was like, anyone who can come, we need an audience. So anyone who can come, you know, come through and we're going to film this video. And so me and my friend drove from, from Ohio to New Jersey, um, which is not that treacherous of a drive, depending on how one feels about Pennsylvania. I'm so used to it now that like <laughs> driving through Pennsylvania is not fun, but I, I it has its charms. Um, 
and it's not fun. Not that Pennsylvania is a bad state. It's just a very large state. And so, you know, like driving through it is just never ending, but I like it. Um, and we got to New Jersey and in order to film this video, they had to play the song over and over again, like all day. And there was something about that time of that kind of repetition about watching an audience. And this was a new song for them, right? And so like watching an audience and a band both get more comfortable with themselves and, and get more comfortable with everything happening in the environment around them was really pleasing and really exciting. Um, and it made me feel like less ashamed of repetition. And I think now looking back, it unlocked this thing in me that I returned to, which tells me that when I finish a poem, for example, I'm probably not done with that one poem. There's more resting underneath it that I can that I can discover. And so I, I learned about a lot about returning and repetition that that I think still still haunts me in a good way. Is that something you make a practice of now, returning, like writing a poem and then going back to it and writing further into it? Oh, yeah. I mean, Fortune for Your Disaster, you know, it had, my last poetry book had like 16 of the, the Black people flower poems in it with the same title, but I wrote like 35. <laughs> and even in this book, you know, like I thought I was done with Aretha Franklin and then I wasn't. Um, and so there's like two back-to-back Aretha Franklin essays, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's comforting for me uh, to have things to return to. And, and, it, and it's freeing to remind myself that I'm not finished with something just because I finished a draft of something. It, it really upends, um, it really upends my ideas around productivity. Oh, how so? Well, because it, anything that upends my ideas with finishing or, you know, capital C completion, um, makes me think in terms not of how much of this work can I do, but instead, how deeply into one idea can I go? Which is a way more generous mode of production for me because sometimes that means, like with the flower poems, people aren't going to see over half of them, you know, or about half of them. Um, And that is calming for me. Every year, I take the last like month of the year off from most things except for, although now it's wild because Yahoo Answers is shutting down and I hope they archive them. But um, I I have this running series of essays where I, I write these little kind of baby essays about Yahoo Answers. You know, I'll stumble on a Yahoo answer and, and write a little, maybe like 800 words. And I'll just do it, you know, if I take like four weeks off, I'll just do like one or two a week and no one ever sees them. And it's, I need the idea of writing to remain based in pleasure and rooted in pleasure. And that's it for me. I don't know how to write about things I'm not interested in or not excited about. And I've had the good fortune to pursue my excitements really, really eagerly and really robustly. And I don't ever want to be able, I don't ever want to turn away from that. And so asking the question of not how much work can I get done, but how far can I go into an idea I'm excited about really changes my outlook. Will you, um, will you tell me about your <laughs> relationship with Yahoo Answers? Yeah. I mean, I, so like two, maybe two, two years ago, maybe three years ago, um, I was on, I just like, was like, I wonder if Yahoo Answers is still around. And I found, I went to the site and you can kind of just type in anything, right? And I'm, I'm most interested in the, the, the tone of it. It's such a unique place on the internet where 
people are asking sometimes very vulnerable questions and not being ridiculed, you know? Yes, some of the answers are like ridiculous and definitely not the best advice in the world and um, patronizing or what, but a lot of them are, are really tender and really thoughtful. And I mean, we're talking like really deeply vulnerable questions. People, young folks being like, I really want to kiss this person, but I don't know how, you know? Um, mm. And people being, it's, it's like a, a portal where the internet at large does not feel that tender to me. Um, and Yahoo Answers is a place that had a lot of tenderness in it. And I was, uh, yeah, and, and again, like, not everything in Yahoo Answers was tender, let's be clear. But the, the ones I was most interested in are, are just these examples of vulnerability. You know, I'm the youngest of four. And so that means that for a stretch of my life, I was a pretty lonely kid, you know, um, or loneliness, or at least isolation came very easy to me. And feeling on the outside of my understanding of the world just came to me very easily. And so Yahoo Answers you know, I never got on. It was like a little bit after my understanding of the internet. But that's a place where I think I would have lived a lot of my teenage life um, trying to make sense of the world because I, I didn't know how otherwise. And um, so I think I returned to it as a service for my past self, but also as a fascination with a kind of ever-present softness and a calm and measured response to someone who is aching for clarity. We started by talking about discipline and like the discipline of your religious background as something that has enabled your writing life. And we've also talked a little bit about what's come up is pleasure and now tenderness or softness, gentleness. Um, and I'm wondering if that balance for you, the balance between discipline and, and work and softness and pleasure is grounded for you in your faith background or if that felt like something you had to discover on your own? Oh, I think that's something I had to discover on my own. I think it's something I'm still discovering. I think as I get older, my desire for softness and tenderness grows, but the toolbox I have to access it and build a roadmap to it is still sometimes the toolbox I had when I was like 20, which wasn't a very, you know, wasn't a very diverse toolbox. Um, right. And so I'm learning ways to get closer to tenderness and to softness um, to align myself with those strategies, aligning those strategies with my desire, which is hard. It's hard to align strategy with desire, you know, um, but, but worthwhile, I think. Yeah. How, how did that come together in Little Devil, do you think? Well, by giving myself permission to write a book that centered my investments in my pleasure, um, and nothing else. Something that I think would have otherwise felt self-indulgent or inappropriate almost in my, my earlier years um, that felt instead um, really thrilling 
you know, getting myself to the point that it feels really thrilling and really exciting um, instead of shameful. That just unlocked the work for me. And some of that, again, was, was grounded in a type of urgency to say that it feels, you know, the whole project of A Fortune for Your Disaster, the book before this book, was writing into the very real reality that no one at all is required to love me. And therefore, I am to only have immense gratitude for the fact that people still choose to or that anyone still chooses to. And um, to have that propel me into this book meant that this book was centering gratitude uh, in a way that was not at all shameful. But it took a while to get there. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. <laughs>